Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. Hello, everyone. Today I'm talking to Peter Schwartman and Egon Tripodi. Peter is from Carnegie Mellon and Egon is from the University of Essex about their paper, Self-Persuasion, Evidence from Field Experiments at International Debating Competitions. For those of our listeners who haven't read the paper, could you please briefly explain what it is about? Hi, Jonas. Thanks for having us. This is Egon here. So this is a paper that we started like a few years ago, and it's about this idea of self-persuasion, that as we try to convince others of a particular view that we have, we also align our beliefs closer with that view. And we thought this was important because persuasion, persuasive communication is everywhere. Like think of CEOs pitching plans to investors or financial advisors pushing products in which they make higher commissions. And we study this question in the setting of debating competitions that provide both an interesting population and communication environment to study, but also very nice features that will allow us to make clean causal statements. In debating competitions, participants are given a motion to debate, and they're randomly assigned to argue either in favor or against the motion. And what we do, our team went to international debating competitions, and we administer surveys among debaters before the competition, as well as right before the debate started and right after the debate uh, was, was, was over. And in the surveys, we carefully measured their, the beliefs of debaters on the veracity of factual statements related to the debate, but also how confident they were in the strength of their side of the debate and how worthy they perceive charitable causes that are aligned with the side of the debate that they're arguing. And in language of persuasion, we find that already before the debate begins, debaters are much more confident about the case of their side of the debate and they believe statements that are supporting their arguments to be more likely to be true. Interestingly, we find this type of polarization in private views between the two sides of the debate to persist even after the debate and after the whole competition is over the day after. Thanks for the summary. And I must say, as a debater myself, I, I totally believe in your effect. And I definitely noticed this and after praying for a round in the debate competition myself. And I'm wondering, how did you come up with this idea for this particular project? And how did you form the team? Is anyone of your team a competitive debater? Or how did you think about doing this at debating competitions? So none of us are competitive debaters. We certainly like to debate. I think I was visiting Bonn, the Prick Institute in Bonn, and, and gave a lecture there that Egon attended. And then we had a meeting after that. And we talked about the difficulty of testing ideas around self-persuasion or even motivated cognition more generally in field settings, because it's just very hard to get identification. And then I think Egon said, well, have you thought about debating competitions? As far as I know, they randomly assign uh, people to a persuasion goal. And then I think from this moment, we knew we had to make this work. And then obviously, there were lots of obstacles in the way. We had to figure out partners. We, we communicated with a lot of people that weren't that keen on cooperating with us until we found someone. And ultimately, we asked Joel van der Wehle, a previous co-author of mine, who uh, worked on, on, on topics with me that are quite similar to join the team because we thought he'd make a great addition and we would complement each other really nicely. But the idea really came talking about research and this sort of literature in office in Bonn. And, and it was the sort of idea where once we, we started talking about it, it was clear that it could be very exciting. Good. Aegon, anything to add to that? No, it was great. I mean, I was not a debater. I, like my encountering with, with debating competitions 
was random. Like I saw a few years prior to meeting Peter Shangwali giving an awesome presentation of his job market paper on the restart tour. And I was amazed by how well he was he was as a speaker. And I started looking at this guy and I was like, I find out that like he was one of the greatest debaters of all time. And that's how I got started getting excited about I was watching debates a lot and I was just like how knowledgeable these kids are. Yeah, uh, cool. And so the experiment that you ran at these competitions was pre-registered. And what was kind of your motivation to do this? My, my, my sense is that I think in the team, we all had different priors about what we would find. And it was useful to pre-committing to a set of analysis. It was a great way to analyze the data until, to avoid analyzing the data until you find what supports your views and then eventually engaging in some kind of self-persuasion. Uh-huh. So I think it was like, I think from my side, at least, I thought this was like a very useful exercise to try this sort of give more credibility to our results. Do you have anything to add to that, Peter? So I think pre-registration in a project like this is very useful because we really fairly early realized we'd have to elicit a bunch of measures at various different times. And from all of these measures and potential outcome variables, one could reverse engineer all kinds of hypotheses. And so it's just the right and the scientific thing to say, look, here's our focus. This is why we went to the setting. Here's our main hypothesis that we want to test. It also then yeah, gives you some credibility down the line where people may feel, look, this is too rich a data set. How do we know that these were the main hypotheses you were after? Because if you weren't, and if you, uh, <laughs> if you ran all kinds of analyses, obviously we'd have some doubt about the, about for, or some worries about false positives. Great. And do you think pre-registration is kind of makes sense under any circumstances or was it really the fact that this was a setup where you could have tested a million of different hypotheses and it was kind of important to pin yourself down and also because you maybe had internal disagreement about what's going to happen initially? Mm -hmm. So I think we were clear on the main hypothesis. I think it was especially useful to, if you know, if you, I think pre-registration is quite useful if you want to look into a heterogeneity that makes a lot of sense, even from a theoretical perspective but would look ad hoc or exposed if you, can, if you put it in the paper afterwards. I think the cost of pre-registration is fairly limited in a world where the audiences and referees behave fairly, in where, they, where they treat papers that aren't pre-registered as always have, well, more exploratory and give your exploratory analyses, exactly those analyses that aren't pre-registered, the same sort of evaluation. Of course, it's hard for me to say to what extent that is happening. Where this is not happening, you might be tying yourself down in this sort of competition to have people pay attention to your papers. But sort of from a scientific perspective, I, I don't think it limits you because you're always allowed to run further analyses and just label them clearly as exploratory. So it's really only for sort of strategic or career concern motives that you, that you might want to avoid pre-registration. I think it makes more sense in some settings than in others. It's probably less necessary if you design a really neat experiment that quite obviously just tests one clear hypothesis because then, you know, that's as if you were pre-registered it. It's fairly clear what you were after. It's probably slightly more useful in richer environments or if you're interested in some heterogeneities that aren't obvious ex ante. 
Yeah, great. Egon, anything to add to that? Or do you fully agree? I think I, I agree with this. The one thing I would, why I value like reading papers that are pre-registered a little more is because I am, as a reader, I'm more excited about results that I was expecting because I, I can trust the key values more. And I'm slightly less excited about results that are really cool because they're they're surprising. And then like, but I know that the p-values are perhaps less reliable because they're exploratory. And so I think it's sort of like, it smoothens a bit this, the, the level of attention that we give to papers based on how surprising they are. And I think for that, it's very important because sometimes we may take uh, like go walk down the path, following, like chasing, like surprising evidence, trying to understand how to reconcile it. And sometimes maybe this evidence is, was not all that uh, reliable or replicable because sometimes we just find results that are false positives. Yeah. And you kind of chose to run the experiment at several debating competitions. You already briefly mentioned that initially you tried to find a partner. It wasn't that easy. So um, like, how did the process work? Like, like how many people did you contact and, and how did you finally get someone to agree to run uh, the study for your debating competitions? So, so maybe I'll start because it, uh, the story begins in Munich. So we both of us, and especially Egon, contacted a lot of people. I contacted the debating society in Munich and asked them whether I could come to their, to their weekly meetings. And I sat in and tried to understand the format of British parliamentary style debating a bit better and got to get to know the debaters there and ultimately asked them whether we could co-organize a tournament. So at this point, we had lost hope that debaters would let us come to their tournament and just implement our experimental design, which ultimately across the four tournaments we were able to do in three of them, but just not the first one. And th the first one we thus co-organized with the Munich uh, Debating Society and yeah, hashed out how we can get the most useful data out of this tournament while still making it maximally fun for debaters and not deviating too far from protocol. Because, I mean, as you will probably understand better than us, it's just you want to do it the real way. It's, uh, you might consider it a bit of a waste of time if we get to implement, if we can completely change the format because you are also practicing for the, I don't know, for the next bigger open at any point in time. And so, yeah, there was a lot of back and forth to kind of uh, reconcile our, our slightly divergent goals. At one point, the debaters, when, when we asked, I don't know what we asked for. We wanted something that would have really, I don't know, that would have been a nice tweak to our data set. And they said to me, Peter, you wouldn't ask a chess champion to play the game without a queen, would you? So stop asking me for this. We cannot give it to you. So there was a lot of this, but ultimately I think we found something that worked for everyone and we got them a very nice, like big old university building to host the tournament and provided some nice food. And um, so, yeah, it worked. And then the, the next three tournaments, two of which were online, we we got to, we didn't co-organize. We just sort of, I don't want to say infiltrated, but we, we were asked, we were invited to join and uh, elicit our, our different measures. And there, I think really like it was Egon and Joel who, who were in touch with the partners. So Egon, how did this work from your perspective with the later tournaments? I think my sense was that at the beginning, like we were trying to reach two very large uh, international debating competitions. So it was very hard to buy their trust. 
And like Peter was, it was very useful, the kind of effort that Peter did to sort of like build trust with the local debating community by just attending their events, showing that he's part of the academic faculty, like showing engagement. But then once we, like we were, we were on the radar of the debating community, at least like the people that were organizing tournaments, it became a lot easier to convince them to work with us. And eventually, like, we managed to track even very large competitions that were taking place online during COVID. I agree. So maybe there's also kind of a general lesson to learn from that. Like, once you have the trust and once you kind of put a lot of effort in finding your first partner, you can also show that, okay, we can do this without disrupting your work too much or your competition in this case. And then uh, it's easier to find data partners. Would you say that? In the most settings, you want to show your partner that you're someone reliable and you will not interfere with their operations. And the setting of debating competitions is very important because organizers of tournaments want to be able to track the best debaters. And the best debaters won't show up if they have the sense of it's not going to be a good, a good tournament because like, you're going to change the structure dramatically. Great. And could you walk us a bit through the timeline of the project? So like when, for example, when did you start and how long did it take you to finish the different stage of the project? Yeah, so it took us like several months to, to get enough funding for this project because, of course, like co-organizing tournament at the beginning and then like sponsoring others later on was quite, was quite expensive and like well so a, a lot of our services were relatively expensive because we wanted to compensate people for their answers based on the quality of the reports because we wanted to have incentive compatible measures of our outcomes and so attracting funding was a big part of of the timeline we weren't able to conduct any pilots because we just didn't have extra competitions, extra debates to play with. So it was really like, to some extent, a very risky study because we didn't know that the kind of questions we were using were, were good at capturing the exact phenomenon we were after. But we had a strong sense that like they had to be good enough to measure their self-persuasion. Did our design change over time? Yes, it did because we had two phases right it was the first phase in which we had done like this in-person studies at the in-person debating competitions and then through the publication process we we were we were encouraged to like to study additional hypotheses that we tested in new online experiments online debating competitions since you just mentioned that you added two additional experiments based on reviewer feedback i'm wondering if you could talk us a little bit through how the review process looked like so the paper is now forthcoming in the american economic review and i'm wondering how long did you work on the project before you submitted it and how long did the review process take you so I don't remember the timeline, but we certainly spent a lot of effort in getting it perfect in our eyes. And then we sent it to the American Economic Review and we got reports. An editor <laughs> who said, look, we rarely ask people for field experiments to go back to the field and collect more data. We think it's possible in your case and we would like to see a slight like a bigger sample still just so that we can be sure about the it actually it wasn't so much about the robustness of the self-persuasion effect before the debate but it was about the question what happens after the debate that we had our error bands were a bit large so we couldn't quite say whether beliefs converge again or whether they stay um, polarized after the debate Right in comparing the two sides of the debate and uh, the polarization due to self-persuasion that arose before the debate. And so there more data was going to be useful. 
And uh, so we were asked to basically at least double our data size. That was then some more nuance was added with power calculations. That was the main thing. And we obviously said, look, we're going to do our very best. Let's try and do this because you're not, you're going to do everything for publication in the AER. And then we were also able to ask some additional like some additional research questions because we had these two bigger additional tournaments and we were also asked to change the narrative of the paper a tiny bit or well not, which doesn't so much relate to the conclusions but where we see our contributions and the paper as it is now really tells the story of taking a, a literature that was confined to the lab to the field for the first time with high-powered incentives with people that are really experts that care a lot that story was there in the first draft, but we also enjoyed discussing quite a bit of social science theory surrounding these effects that our findings certainly speak to, but maybe not in direct enough a fashion. And so now I think we, the paper through the review process has become more focused in its write-up, more powerful in its statistical analysis, and it tackles one or two additional questions that we weren't quite able to tackle in the initial data set. So I think it's one of these fortunate cases where the revision, although painful and incredibly much work, made the paper quite a bit better. Anything to add to that, Egon? There were like some interesting results that we were able to report with the new data collection. One thing that like was quite intriguing to me uh, from the news of the results is that we find that self-precision in fact will persist even the day after, which is something we weren't able to show the first time because we didn't collect this data. So it sort of speaks a bit to this question that like comes over and over, that is how persistent do you think these effects could be? And like we report some evidence in line with the idea that self-precision is to some extent persistent. And I think it makes the the evidence that we report even more important. It's not just like a heat of the moment kind of effect. Great. And you, you mentioned that like one of the big contributions of the paper is that you took this effect that was previously only studied in lab studies to the field, but then a sense like the debating competitions is, of course, it's a field experiment, but it's not really what we care about, right? Nobody cares about whether debaters convince themselves of stuff. I think you want to speak more about things like politicians convincing themselves of things that they're saying or CEOs self-convincing themselves of uh, things that they're saying. So I'm wondering whether you see any issues in the setup. I mean, it allows you to get a very clean identification, but then, for example, participants only have 15 minutes to prepare for the task and they don't have the ability to fact check. So when you ask them which facts do they believe in, it really must be, if they don't know, it must be a subjective thing. So are you at all worried that this result doesn't translate to scenarios where you say have a politician who could, in theory, who has a large team of, of staff who could fact check his speeches for him? So I think there, there's a couple of answers to the points you raised. The, the first is, are debaters interesting? So I totally agree that it's a somewhat specific group, but it's a group that's specific in very interesting ways. So it's hard to find people that care that much about being persuasive or convincing. So we have really high incentives. They're reputational incentives. There's clearly, I mean, you, you will probably agree with this, a lot of intrinsic motivation to do a good job at being persuasive. So it's it has that feature that compared to the lab, we can really have people that have a lot of incentives that we don't sort of artificially put on the table by rewarding them. 
I think that makes it natural. That allows us to ask about the external validity a bit. We have also people that are just very good at it. They are experts, which is interesting. And we have people that are interacting in a setting that is weird to outsiders, but that is incredibly natural to them, which is a nice feature. And that's different from the lab again. So on the, along these dimensions, we do learn something, I think, about the external validity of these effects. There's something really nice about the randomization that's an issue in other studies potentially. So you know, just before the debate, as a debater, you're told which side you're supposed to argue. This is essentially an experiment, but it's completely conspicuous to you as a debater because it happens at every tournament. Now consider the lab where I tell you I have two options. I can do a between subject design. I can tell you, okay, I now want you to argue in favor of uh, Brexit or like let's say against Brexit, something that's more, that's more palatable perhaps. Then you might think, oh, why are these researchers asking me to, uh, to argue against Brexit? Maybe Brexit is a bad thing, but this is not self-persuasion. This is you inferring from what we asked you to do. There's no risk of that happening at a debating competition. So that's nice. It's nice for Again, this external validity or the, even the internal validity of the findings. Another thing I could ask you or I could do in an experiment is to tell you, we're now going to randomly allocate you to a position that you must argue. But then I'm giving away the experiment and you go, oh, okay, so they're really studying the effect of, these, of this randomization on my beliefs and on what I tell them later. And it might open us up to some form of experimental demand effects. I'm not sure how serious this concern is, but it's something that's not present in this setting where, again, it's supernatural to have this randomization because it happens every weekend at every debating competition. So that's cool. Then the second question is, would we enjoy having just, I don't know, like members of parliaments that we can test in this setting or similar settings, maybe with some uh, fact-checking? Yes, that of course we would, but I think that's, you know, that's really never going to happen to get the randomization in some setting that these people interact in. And so even on this front, I think debaters are great people to look at to the extent that if we think that politicians are very different from the general public, because most UK politicians have a history in debating. So it's actually a subject pool that allows us to move closer from the general public to the politicians, although probably we're still quite some distance away but it's we probably are we probably moved some way there so that's that i think uh, or we think is exciting and then finally the question about fact checking absolutely i think it would be incredibly interesting to ask what happens when fact checking is an option and i could see it go either way so in some of the lab experiments by babcock lowenstein and and camera for example you 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 see that people self-persuade as they engage with objective evidence because they selectively probably browse through it to bolster their side. But it's not clear what would happen here. It's certainly a super interesting question to investigate. Uh, maybe that's something uh, sort of the information search environment. How does that impact this phenomenon is something that, that we probably know fairly little about and that would be worth worthy of an investigation. And another thing that 
because of your design and because of these debate competitions being just like concentrated on a, on two days on the weekend that you couldn't measure is whether these effects kind of fade over time or whether they, these are long-term changes. So do you have any kind of intuition on what's going to happen there? Do you think that these people really like, I'm just convinced about their side in the heat of the moment right before, or right after the debate? Or do you think this might actually change how they think about this in the long term? So it goes back a little to what we were saying, discussing earlier. So with the new studies, we were able to look at the effects at the end of the competition, like the day after. But you're right that we don't have evidence on what, whether people are still self-persuaded after two weeks, after a month. And I think we, we initially talked in the team about this question. And I mean, when we discussed with debaters, it simply wasn't very practical to collect this data like two weeks or a month later. So like there are technical constraints to asking this question, but also conceptually, it seems like there is a disconnection between this setting and like many real world settings in which persuasion incentives stay with you for a much longer time. Whereas here, like they just, they just fade with, with, with the competition. And so it seems like if you want to ask the question of pers persistence, you probably a better setting is one in which you have more persistent persuasion goals. So this could be, we could randomize co-authorship to papers, for example, and see if that affects the perception of the of, of how good the p-values are of the main test. Something like that we could do and like, and that would be like an experiment I would love to see. Great. And a bit related to the fact-checking thing that we talked about during the debate competitions, people usually also or always also get feedback after the round, whether they won or not. And you didn't, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't measure their beliefs after, right after they received the feedback, so which could be some sort of fact-checking, not of the objective facts, but about how persuasive they were at least. So did you think about doing this? Was it just not practical or yeah, why, why didn't you do that? It's already slightly weird. It's always weird to ask people the same question over and over again. So we, in the first, or no, actually in all experiments, one thing we did is we assured that no person is asked the same question twice, because as you recall, we ask people these factual questions and also their donation decisions, both before and after the debate. And so we do this by sort of having a bunch of factual questions and then just randomizing in a way that you're not asked the same question twice. And we felt that, well, ultimately ask like two surveys were the mo most we could get out of the debaters and also pre probably the most that's reasonable and the most that, yeah, can uh, like anything more than that might have really damaged morale and, and people's willingness to respond. So then it was a question between us uh, eliciting this second set of beliefs and attitudes before or after the judge's judgment. And if we had done it after, there would have been a confounding effect of the judge's evaluation and the arguments that you would have heard from your peers on your and the other side during the debate. So we felt that uh, that the effect of your, on your beliefs of being confronted with the beliefs of the other and the arguments of the other debaters was sort of, of, of first order interest to us but i totally agree again that judges feedback what is an interesting experimental sort of manipulation like is the, does this does this does the before and after beliefs do they look different i mean we just we just couldn't do it and decided that the other thing was was really our first order concern but yeah in general how does in information interact with these biases is interesting. We know it from some other papers in motivated cognition that in, that it's harder if this is sort of a 
conscious self-deception where you think it's helpful for you, for example, to believe in your argument firmly. If it's self-deception, it's likely that more precise evidence makes this self-deception harder. That's what we see in, in laboratory studies. But obviously out there in the world, the response to feedback could look very differently. So, so um, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because also then you would have to kind of check whether debaters accept the feedback and agree with it. And that I agree that's probably much less clean than just asking them after the debate. Right. And so with now that you're done with this project or with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything or what, what is there something big that you would have done different if you were to kind of do a project like this again? I think one thing that I find very interesting is, and we wanted to, to, to study this, but just turned out not to be possible in this setting, is how does the audience of this debate react to the base themselves, not only what do they learn, but also how do their views change about the, the speakers? Like, do they think that like someone is more capable uh, or competent if they they make a case that is aligned with what they with what their the, the parrot believes of the, of the audiences? So I think like there's there are a set of questions that, that we still want to pursue in the future about you know like the, the, the two sides of this and I look forward to doing more work on the topic. I'm trying to convince like potential partner in Colombia to study these kind of questions in the setting of financial advising where you have a certain set of people that are uh, financial advisors that are trying to sell like saving for retirement plans to lay people. And then the question is, how do commissions or the size of the commissions that you make affect your perceptions of the quality of these saving plans? And do, do advisors that have steeper incentives come across as as more competent to, to, to the clients? Do they come across as more pushy? Do clients think that the financial advisors have higher incentives or selling a worse quality product or a better? So these are questions that are interesting and important because it, they also shape fundamentally the way we, we want to design incentive schemes in organizations. Peter, anything you would change in hindsight? So I think if I, if I had a if, if I could have any, any sort of elicitation I can dream of, I, I, it would have been amazing to have audiences in there. And as Egon said, you know, see what happens to their beliefs as they listen to a debate. How do they respond to also the self-persuasion? If we see meaningful differences in self-persuasion, are those that use this tool more, more persuasive to audience members? So is this a bias that pays off might it even be might it even be a form of of, of self-deception that has instrumental value for that reason and that's something we we couldn't do in this um we couldn't do in this setting so i think that's an interesting question that maybe i would have even pushed harder for in addition to that i think i'm quite happy with what we've managed to get out of this setting. I think there's a lot of, as, as Egon already alluded to, there's a lot of sort of follow-up questions that would be very interesting that would, however, require a different setting and more control. So I'm quite fascinated by the question of if competitive debating is a force for polarization. So if you know, the coming together of minds doesn't necessarily lead to a convergence of views, but there's this powerful mechanism by which it can be a, a catalyst for polarization. Well, is there a way to reshape communication environments in a way that leads to consensus or more importantly, convergence to some objective truth? 
I think that's an interesting and it's a very hard question. I don't necessarily have concrete hypotheses of how this communication environment would look like or would differ from debating. It would probably be a lot less adversarial. But, but I think that's something that now knowing the re what we found and knowing that this polarization occurs and persists to some extent, or at least till after the debate, I think that's a logical next question. Great. And so you both already mentioned that you have kind of a thinking about follow-up ideas. So what's that something that you, so when you started this project, did you immediately think, oh, this is a huge question and we, we want to kind of run additional projects on that after that? Or did this evolve over time? So like, when did you kind of come up with these follow-up ideas, if you remember? I think maybe if I may start, I think initially when Egon and I talked about it, we had an idea for a project that, that featured sort of three separate papers ultimately. And then we, so it was the opposite. <laughs> we had like a ton of ideas. The self-persuasion hypothesis was always our, our main focus. And then we ultimately, as we talked to our partners and as we refined the design, we, we kind of decided to put all our eggs in one basket to go, because there's always trade-offs. You know, you're always, given that it's a negotiation, that, that your partner has to grant you certain luxuries, uh, implementing more designs in one setting means you might have to give up something in, in, in the thing you're mostly after. And so ultimately, we decided to really go full throttle on the self-persuasion idea and put the other things on hold. Uh, yeah, One of the research questions that we were interested in initially also is uh, that we now didn't really tackle is, is related to audience members. The idea that, that Egon mentioned is if someone is arguing a topic or sorry, a position that's aligned with your privately held belief or position, even if you know that they were randomly asked to, to argue this position, do you think they're more competent than they actually are? Um, is there sort of, does this, is there a bias uh, along those, those dimensions? I think that's something we gave up. Um, and there were quite a few other things we gave up just to make sure that we get our main question right. Great. So, and to conclude the interview, I would like to ask you both a couple of questions, not about this paper, but about how you work in general. So as the first question is like, how does your daily work routine, like if you have one and which environment do you, are you most productive in or how do you set up your work environment to be productive? Um, I don't, Egon, do you want to start? Yeah. So I'm sure Peter has a better routine than I have. But so my, my strategy is to try and have a routine. I think it's really important for me to sort of go to the office and take hot legs because there are like those kind of coffee chats that are very useful, but mostly just like make sure I get to the office always at the same time. I start like with reading an interesting uh, research article that is related to the kind of paper I need to write that day and then like to get me motivated and and then like start start working on the, on the task I had set for myself. It's very easy to get distracted, like with doing things that are that are, that are not functional to your to your daily task, which is writing a paper or like doing some data analysis. Like if you have to, if you know you have to write a paper and you start like thinking about the next referral report you have to write or like start reading emails, it's completely the day is completely gone. At least for me. Yeah, Peter, what about you? Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll give you two answers. The first is my ambition or where I hoped, <laughs> how I would hope to live my life. And then the second is how it, how it actually looks. So the, my ambition would be, and sometimes I've managed this, is to get up and in the morning, 
work on research, don't spend time on email, and then sort of after lunch, do some work that's slightly less cognitively demanding, but still, you know, requires you to be switched on, like working on teaching, reading a paper, writing a referee report, uh, writing slides, stuff like that. And then in the evening, then spend the after, like a good chunk of my afternoon with my daughter. And then in the evening, maybe do some busy work, some admins, some minor emails. And however, the, this year I moved continents during a pandemic with a toddler and <laughs> a very like inter only intermittent childcare. So in reality, I'm just like frantically reacting to, <laughs> to co-authors and colleagues and university administrators in the time I have. Uh, and th th there's very little structure. And I think that's unhealthy and that's very bad. And my, my newest resolution is to change this because I hope to have the space for that again. But it's, it's a constant struggle to sort of enforce a routine. And it's sometimes ironically quite tempting to do the admin and the busy work, because at the very least, you'll know you'll manage <laughs> and you'll finish it, especially when you're a bit overwhelmed with stuff. But, uh, but I haven't found a good way to reconcile COVID with a healthy, with a healthy sort of work life. So, so now I'm, I'm just, uh, yeah, I, I will try a new, but let's see what happens. One thing that I find interesting is we all have different times of the day in which we're more, most productive. And I know that like my 8 to 10 a.m. window is not very productive, but it's very important like that I use that window to get me productive for the rest of the day. And so I think like, uh, that's why I was saying earlier, I try to do something that gets me in the mood. And I think we all have to sort of experiment a little bit and find out what, what is going to make us most productive. And it's an interesting journey that all, all of us academics uh, have to go through. I completely agree. And I think I conjecture that we, that people in general don't experiment em enough just uh, with their private lives, but also with their work arrangements and by experimenting i mean sort of you know let's try this for two weeks and really stick to it and see whether things uh, things are better and i and i think i've uh, i i don't i certainly don't do it enough and my sense is that the people who are, whose routine or regimen i admire they're usually people who have tested a few different things and then found what works for them and not just sort of reacted to circumstance uh, but that's it. It takes some willpower and, and discipline <laughs> to do that. Great. And finally, if there is a single piece of advice that you could give to a young researcher, maybe just starting out their PhD and uh, who is interested in conducting a field experiment, what would that be if you can think of something? Yeah. So I think what I would say is I've heard that people say, don't start your research don't, uh, with a field experiment because they're so risky. And I think I'm on a different camp. Like, I mean, we need to be aware of how risky they are. There are so many moving parts when you're planning field research that can cause your experiment to fail. And so it's important that to some extent you sort of like think carefully through all of your design, like think carefully about the protocol, how everything will happen, which is something you do for any kind of experiment, but you should do even more thoroughly for a, for a field experiment. But then you should also think about two things, like diversify a bit your portfolio, but at the same time not work on too many things because otherwise you stretch yourself too thin and like the, the risk of like failing to pay attention to important bits becomes too high. But also think carefully about, you know, how can you make your project overall less risky? And like one way in which you can make a project less risky is to make sure that whatever you find, people are going to find your paper interesting. 
And so often like there's this concern that you design an experiment and if you don't find a positive or a negative effect, readers will not find it interesting. And so you should ask yourself as a, as, a, as a graduate student in particular, like when you're starting to design the studies, what can I do to make a null effect interesting? And I think this is key. And like often it's all about, you know, uh, people will find a null effect interesting if you have enough statistical power to roll out uh, the, the small effects. Sometimes that's not going to be enough. There's going to be some design feature that needs to be in there to make sure that you don't have an opposite effect going in their direction that people would say is obviously there. And so if that's the case, you need to make sure that the opposite effect will not be there. But so generally thinking about, you know, just not only what you can do to make the project not fail, but the experiment not fail, but also what you can do to make sure that the, that the results are going to be interesting on the line. Um, great, Peter. Yeah, I don't think I have much to add to that. I think that's very good advice. I, I would say do it, if, if you're going to do a big ambitious field experiment, do it with people or a person you really like who can, who is or can become a friend because there will be times where the, where everything see, falls apart or comes apart at the seams and, and then it's very good to not be in it alone. And there will be times where it's just so much and stressful that we will go off the rails and then it's good if there's someone else who stays calm and then next time when they go off the rails, you can be that person for them. I think that was my experience in, in this particular project where at various points, just random stuff, you know, like during the while we admit like sending our A's out, like running through the corridors to get the right surveys to the right debaters at the right point in time, we get informed that there's a piano recital in the main hall of the building that we are the foyer of the building that we're using for the debating competition. And we must be really quiet. <laughs> and then <laughs> that's at the end of a day. And so you kind of then have to shepherd the debaters around the piano competition and you you kind of and it all gets too much and then it's it's really nice not to be in the situation alone or not have the to share the responsibility and to get to have a beer afterwards and laugh about it uh, so i think when it comes to field experiments sort of teamwork is is a blessing i think those are some wise closing words and uh, thanks again so much for doing the interview and thanks also to our listeners and we hope you tune in next time to behavior science uncovered